0: Welcome to another chapter of the book show here on RTE Radio One. I'm Rick O'Shea. There's a bit of a crime feel to the show this week. Later on, we begin at the end, if you know what I mean, with Chris Whittaker talking to the Readin' and Feeding Book Club, and Stephanie Preisner walks us through a lineup of Scandinavian cops, American cops, UK cops, and even the Gardi. But first. When Helen Cullen started writing her novel The Truth Must Dazzle Gradually, she knew she wanted to chart seismic societal change as seen through the lives of one family off the West Coast. She also found herself interrogating the cultural meaning of the Irish mammy. It's a consequence, she says, of our iconisation of the role of mother in Irish society, that mothers as fully formed three-dimensional characters have historically been largely absent from our literature. Helen Cullen joins me now. Helen, you have literally done the dissertation on this subject.
1: Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about this. I guess I have really I did a literature master's in Brunel University last year, and I chose as my specialist subject of of sorts to write about Anne Enright and her representations of the mother in Irish history. So it's a subject I've been thinking a lot about over the last few years. And it definitely did inform the writing of the novel in ways that I don't think I even fully appreciated when I was writing it, but it's only now that I look back on it and talk to different women in particular and mothers about the reaction to the novel that I realise how much the text became infused with all of that thinking I was doing about how we consider the mammy at home in Ireland.
0: Yeah, I've I've heard a lot of people talk about that and we will come to it uh, in a few minutes. But the Irish mammy, she's always been a bit of a cliché. She has been the butt of the joke on many occasions.
1: I think it's true to say that that Irish mammy symbol has become a figure of fun in a way that at this point now I just think that joke isn't funny anymore. You know we have these generations of women who sacrificed pretty much everything you know to raise their families when the state and the church were holding hands in their subjugation and hopefully everyone's beginning to make up to this that you know there are women with agency and independent thought and imaginative lives of their own and I think that it's just impossible anymore for us to be comfortable with some of those stereotypes that you know have been basically the butt of the joke in Ireland for such a long time. And obviously, I don't think that's across the board. There have been some incredible mothers written into Irish literature, but I just think generally in our culture and society, the voice of the mammy, the voice of the mother as a subjective woman in her own right has been really largely absent.
0: What I find interesting about your take on this is that you think that the papal visit in 1979 was one of those key events in almost slowing down progress.
1: When you think about it now, it actually doesn't seem like this could have happened, but Pope John Paul II stood in Limerick in 1979 and actually said, and I'm not misquoting the man, you know, may the Irish mothers, the young women and girls not listen to those who tell them that working at a secular job or succeeding in a secular profession is more important than the vocation of giving life and caring for the life as a mother. So when you think about the impact that that would have had and all those thousands of families who were standing listening to him and the long shadow that that has cast on our society and our culture since then, it's actually quite frightening.
0: I mean, unsurprisingly, Edna O'Brien was one of those people who, who almost tackled this head on, but it was, it was in her memoir. It was in Mother Ireland.
1: Well, Edna, of course, is the woman who broke down the door so that Irish women writers like me could kind of follow in her wake and even begin to talk about some of these things. But we have to remember, of course, everybody is very aware of the fact that Edna was run out of the country for daring to talk about women as sexualized beings. And um, she, of course, was never afraid to put women as people of agency and with thought into her novels and wrote this incredible novel called The uh, Light of the Evening where she talked about the mother-daughter relationships. So we've Edna so much to thank for being kind of the first voice who wasn't afraid to discuss this and I think in more recent times then Anne Enright has really been the woman who has captured so perfectly on the page the idea of the Irish Mammy uh, you know as uh, to really interrogate that cultural symbol of, of what she means to us and to give them agency and to give them a voice And so I think, you know, for me, Anne Enright has done the most in recent years to really kind of, you know, interrogate that idea of the mother and represent the real mammies on the page to us and not just, you know, what they serve to us as a symbol.
0: She did some extraordinary work in in that area when she was the laureate for fiction a, a few years ago
1: absolutely i mean and anne, anne wrote a memoir 2004 called making babies where she you know at that moment reflected a lot about what it meant to be a mother and to be a writer and she said even then you know can mothers not hold a pen because it was so clear to her that you know mothers as someone who was who were allowed to have a voice and a cultural platform in ireland you know was still a really rare thing i mean back in 1929 virginia wolf said that we think back through our mothers if we're women because we can't go to the great men writers for help, however much we might go to them for pleasure. And when you think about the fact that Anne was still writing about this in 2004, it's really remarkable. So I I think it has really become a major legacy of her work and particularly as her laureate for fiction for to ask people to really start considering this and think about it and you know interrogate ourselves about why we're comfortable with these ideas that we have about our mothers Uh, you know my friends and i often talk about now the fact that we consider ourselves to be such strong feminists but sometimes that collapses a bit when it comes to looking at our own mammies because even though we might want you know, empowerment and individualism and agency and excitement and adventure for all the women in the world, it's still really hard to shake off the idea of what we want our own mammies to be. And I think that's a really complicated thing.
0: I want to get back to your most recent book, if I can, because you do things here as as well. The Truth Must Dazzle Gradually uh, is your second novel. It's one of my favourite books of of 2020. But Maeve, who's the the central character in the book, she's a blow in. That's kind of an important, a, a key aspect in telling the story.
1: It is. I deliberately had Maeve arriving into Ireland as an American who would be coming into the country in 1978, the year before that, in People's Mass in Limerick in 1979, so that she could serve as a lens through which I could view some of these ideas about motherhood in Ireland and have her battle with that idea of the perfect mammy that she was going to ask to be to become if she was going to have children in Ireland herself and see how that would inform how I approached representing the mother in Ireland by having this outsider look at it. And I think it was something that Maeve really struggled with, you know, having to bring up her children where they were comparing her to the other Irish mammies who were maybe conforming to this idea of what a mother should be. And it was a really interesting way for me, I found when I was writing on it to kind of tackle some of these subjects. I'm not sure how much of this is explicit. You know, when you're actually writing the novel, you're sort of letting the story unfold. And then it's kind of later when you go back and start teasing out some of the themes and thinking about, you know, your grand design of the novel, that uh, some of these things become clearer to you. But um, Maeve ended up, really being for me a way to start really interrogating some of these things in my own work and contributing to that conversation. And I think Maeve, as an American woman in Ireland, did really struggle with how much she was compared to the other Irish mammies. And there's this moment in in the novel that was really hard for me to write, but that a lot of people have responded to where she says that she feels it is so much easier to love a dead mother than a mad mother in Ireland, because she's struggling so much with how much she feels she's let down her family by not being able to perform in the way that, you know, the other Irish mothers that their children are witnessing, you know, are, are behaving around her. So it was a really challenging thing. But um, I think she really gave me an incredible vehicle through which to kind of ask some of these questions.
0: I mean, unsurprisingly, given the strength of Irish writing in, in recent years and Irish writing by women in, in recent years, there is a whole new wave of modern Irish writers who are all tackling this theme as well, isn't there?
1: Yes, it has been incredible to witness these voices coming through who are discussing some of these subjects you know that as we talked about have been sort of dormant in our literature for such a long time I mean even just this year Elaine Feeney has written an incredible book as you were that I know you're familiar with that you know really looked at generations of women in Ireland and has a really complex Irish mother at the centre of that and it's been really important to the cultural conversation in Ireland to have these novelists coming through I mean Sinead Gleason's book Constellations even though it's non-fiction you know spoke so much to this subject about the, you know the mother in our society sometimes I think you know the idea of the mother was was regulated in the past to a kind of a domestic issue that didn't have political power but these incredible women coming through have definitely you know woken the world up to its importance
0: Just Just maybe to finish If somebody had told you when you were writing The Truth Must Dazzle Gradually that you'd write a book about the complexity of motherhood in Ireland and one in which the depiction of a mother is maybe what has resonated best with readers, what would you have thought?
1: Well, I would have been very surprised. I didn't actually think this was going to be a book about motherhood at all. I thought it was more going to be a book about fatherhood. It started for me with Marta Moon, who's the main character, And I started thinking about this generation of men and women, but in particularly the fathers who, you know, were maybe watching all the changes in society that have happened in recent years and would reflect upon their own lives and what it must be like for someone if they have held secrets that they couldn't share because society would have condemned them for them and to realise that it would be totally fine you know, now, if they were starting again, for that to be something that people knew. And I think that's relevant, obviously, to both women and men. But for me, I started thinking about the father in particular, and I saw him drawing his children all home and talking to them. But then it just occurred to me that I didn't know where their mother was and who was this woman it's funny to me now that when people you know read the book they think it must have always been Maeve, you know that she was where it started from but actually she kind of crept up on me and revealed herself to me i think i would have been too scared to write her if i had set out to write her but she must i think all these ideas about mothers were lingering in my subconscious waiting for an opportunity to be um explored on the page but they kind of uh, you know sneaked up on me
0: helen cullen it is always brilliant to talk to you and thanks for joining us on the book show
1: Thank you so much, Rick.
0: The Truth Must Dazzle Gradually by Helen Cullen is published by Michael Joseph. Whatever the prevailing wider trends, whether we're quarantined at home or on a beach sunning ourselves, remember that, the crime novel will always be with us. And whether fueled by whiskey, coffee, cigarettes or all three, most of us have a favourite fictional cop. I say most of us, I'm not sure Stephanie Preisner does, as she was very nearly a uniformed officer, as they say, in the United States. True?
2: Yes, but it wasn't in the United States, it was in Templemore, which is far less glamorous. It was my dream to be the first female Garda Commissioner. And then Noreen O'Sullivan whipped that dream out of my hands. But she did launch my first book because I've been such a fan of hers. But yes, I was in Templemore for two weeks, gave it a go, left to take an acting job, said I would go back when the acting stopped. And here I am talking to you about my shattered dreams. But guards in books are not realistic at all because they always come across either one extreme or the other. Say we'll take American books, British books and then the Scandi ones, right? None of them really represent what I think the guards are.
0: So what if, for instance, we started with the the Scandies? You're right, they are huge stereotypes in, in Scandi noir.
2: So the Scandi cops are either bullish men or alpha women. And it's always people who could possibly be the perpetrator because they're that questionable. And their lives are like sparsely decorated, it's snowing, they're kind of described, the women particularly anyway, as starving, they're cold and they're thin and the sentences are also scant, you know, they're sparse, it's like, Martha was cold, it's like, of course she was cold, it's a cold place, she's miserable, she's starving and there's a killer on the loose.
0: Okay, let's go to the other end of the scale, which I think is the other end of the scale, which is cops in the United States.
2: Yes, and cops in the United States are also miserable, but it's different. They're like trapped in a hell of their own making. They always seem to be either on their way to an AA meeting or they're on their way to realising they are alcoholics. American cops always have something in their past that traumatises them. They saw their brother getting killed or their child got killed and they couldn't protect them or... They're caring too much about their job so their personal lives are falling apart. Their wife is about to leave them. There's always something terrible and it's really dramatic and secret as if we can't possibly guess that your man is traumatised even though he's getting by on a nagging of vodka lunch.
0: I was thinking about UK crime novels during the week because a, a former friend of the show, well, I think he's still a friend of the show. He hasn't said anything about it. Ian Rankin um, was tweeting during the week for those people who saw Michael Gove talking about scotch eggs and whether or not they were a substantial meal for the new lockdown procedures in the UK. Ian Rankin had tweeted a reminder of Rebus's patented recipe for scotch eggs. Put eggs on to boil, pour a scotch while you wait, keep drinking, throw away the eggs. That's about right, isn't it?
2: It's this thing, and I don't know if it's our inherited trauma as Irish people, but there's thing about Brits, British cops in these novels in particular. I just can't relate to them. They just seem preposterous, smarmy with their tall helmets and their attitude. It's like and they always say something like slightly patronising but under their breath because they're too cowardly to actually take on a killer and I find them totally unrelatable we've all heard about awful things that have happened in Britain but in the crime novels they always seem to be tackling this awful killer who people don't quite know you know they give him a naff name and kind of make a caricature out of him whereas actually if you take the reality of the news cycles in the Daily Mail sometimes that's horror enough
0: Which leads me back to where I think we're going to finish here, which is Irish Guards in books.
2: Oh, that's, come on. Aren't they great? When it's done well, it's brilliant. And actually, the time I've seen it done best in fiction was actually with Graham Norton's holding. Did you read that?
0: I did. It was great, yeah.
2: And did you like the cop in it? Uh,
0: Sergeant uh, Collins, yeah.
2: Yeah, Sergeant PJ Collins. He's an actual member of Vanguard, is on it? Do you know what I mean? Like, you can imagine him stopping you at a COVID checkpoint and asking you what's the purpose of your trip? And you saying, I'm just out for a drive. And him being like, go on, so off you go. You can just—he Don't just, worry
0: about the corpse in the boot.
2: Yeah, he just wouldn't even look in the back of the car. You see, on shikona they're not armed. They don't want to enforce anything. They want to educate. They want to engage. They want to have the chats. They want to have a point with you. Elbow to elbow, one of the lads. And I really got that in Graham Norton's holding. And he's also, he turned out to be, spoiler alert, very competent, did the job in the end. Great book if you haven't read it, do but it's nice to see a fictionalised version of The Guards that's actually quite true to life.
0: And that's where we're going to leave that. Stephanie, thanks a million cheers. See you next week. It's time to hear from our second last book group of the year. Here's Dimpna McKenna to tell us all about the wonderfully named Reading and Feeding Book Club in Drogheda.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Drogheda to meet our book club, Reading and Feeding, named after two of our favourite activities... Our club grew out of a conversation about how isolating life can sometimes be when living far away from family. At our first meeting in 2011 we had six blow-ins, all of whom knew someone present but no one who knew everyone. That night it was a case of shared trepidation. The first book we read was called Sister by Rosamond Lupton. The title just seemed to suit the occasion. It was a good read then and her latest novel, Three Hours, was an even better read a few months ago. Since then, we have taken turns hosting our monthly meetings. The host prepares some food, we keep it simple, and she also chooses the book to read. We read all kinds of books, from literary fiction, to crime, to non-fiction, to graphic novels, and everything in between. No genre dominates, and no genre is off the table. During the nine years, we've read books that have been universally loved and a few that have been universally hated. Most have had mixed reactions from the members, but the worst response of all has to be that of indifference. You'll be pleased to hear that bland is definitely not a word we use when talking about tonight's book. Reading and feeding has enriched my life immeasurably. It endures because of its focus on friendship and belonging as much as it does on the reading. What more can one
0: hope for? This week's book is We Begin at the End by Chris Whittaker, who I'll speak to shortly from his home in England. But before that, here's Fiona Gunn with a little about the book itself.
4: We Begin at the End is literary crime at its finest. Set in a small town in California, it is a masterful tale of everyday tragedies and the lengths we will go to to save the people we love. It is populated with memorable characters, some of whom make bad choices which have devastating consequences. Even the supporting characters are complex and well-drawn. It is intricately plotted and not a moment is wasted. I love how the author does not spell everything out for the reader, but yet everything is there on the page if you look. I guarantee this one will stay with you.
0: And I'm joined by the author of We Begin at the End. Hello, Chris Whitaker.
5: Hello, thank you for
4: having me.
0: Thanks a million for joining us. You, you come highly recommended by this book club. Have you had any experience with this particular book, with book clubs
5: so far? Um, y- less so, just because it published during lockdown. Normally I kind of do the rounds, you know, and go visiting and get really drunk with all the book clubs. And it's like, I love it. It's my favourite part of it. But um, no, so it's all been online. So I've done a few Zoom ones, but they're not, they're just not the same.
0: Well, you could always get drunk yourself.
5: I do. Yeah, I do. My wife frowns so when I'm doing, when I'm drinking alone. She doesn't like it.
0: It's seen as being slightly less than professional, which I think is nonsense uh, as well. I do. Frankly. I do. Tell me about the book, though, because you're right. It, it did come out pretty much smack bang at the very beginning of Covid when a lot of novels were, were postponed and were, and were moved out. Um, the book was three years in the making. How, how mm-hmm. hard has it been to get the word out for this particular one?
5: Um, not, not as bad because we got Waterstones support, the support of Waterstones and Easons as well. But I we kind of had a massive debate me and my publisher about whether we should push it back a year because it doesn't publish in America until March. So I'm starting to do all the PR for that. So I thought maybe we should have lined up with them. But then Waterstones um, got behind the book and they said, let's publish now. And I kind of went along with it and kicked up a bit of a fuss. And then they were right, because now it's sold quite well and everyone seems to like it. So I've claimed responsibility for that idea as well.
0: It, it, it's always good to do that. Tell, tell me about, because people may not realise about the day job, because despite the fact that, you know, you're an author, you have kept on a little bit anyway of mm-hmm. the day job as a librarian.
5: As I do, I work in my local library, which I love. It's like my, I've had so many jobs in my life and I think it's my favourite, other than an author, obviously. It's my favourite job. Um, yeah, we've been shut down for ages, you know, during lockdown, but it's kind of reopened now. And I don't know if a lot of people know that it's open properly because it hasn't been as busy or if people are just staying away. Um, and I also trade in the stock market as well, which I used to do. So I kind of have three jobs at the moment.
0: Well, what else would you be doing to keep yourself occupied at a, at exactly. a, at a time Well, like we've this. got a
5: newborn baby as well. <laughs> and we're living on a building site. Any, anything else you
0: want to throw in there? That's a lot. That's five.
5: <laughs> I know. It is really, it's, been, it's been a really tough year, actually.
0: OK, I'm going to get to the questions uh, from the Reading and Feeding Book Club, because that's why we're here. The first one comes okay. from Catherine McKenna.
3: Hello, Chris. My name is Catherine McKenna. And my question is... One reviewer of your book commented that we begin at the end is the perfect example of a great American novel. We wondered, as a Londoner, how did you manage to make your novel sound so authentically Californian? And also, why go for an American setting in the first place?
5: OK, so the first thing, America came about. Um, I, You know, when I'm reading a book, I generally prefer something that's set kind of a world away from the from where I live, and um, America is an amazing country to right crime, you know, they've got these, these gun laws, they've got these autonomous police forces that work in these small towns, so you don't really get caught up in the police procedural side of it, which is not what interests me so much as the character side of it. And, um, and it's just huge, isn't it? It's like a world within a country, you know, it's, the landscape's diverse, the people, um, I just find it easier, you know, my imagination tends to run wild When I set books in America, I've just written a teenage book then that's set in the UK. So I have come home for one. But um, as for, you know, how I get it right, it's like trial and error, really. So this is my third book set in America and we always get an American copy editor. And I've got an American team of editors that have worked on this one. Um, But I think probably working in the library helps because I spend all my time reading and researching and... You know, I need it to, though the towns are fictional, they're set in real places. So I'll I'll make up a town and plonk it down somewhere real and then um, spend a long time with maps and books about California or Montana and um, and just go from there.
0: Okay, question number two, uh, about we begin at the end uh, for you. Chris Whittaker comes from Miriam.
5: Hi, Chris,
3: Miriam here. I really enjoyed this book, particularly the female characters. Duchess, a driving force in the story, while being an engaging character can be very infuriating in that she often made snap decisions that had far reaching unintended consequences. My question is, were you worried that you might alienate the reader by this character trait in Duchess?
5: Um, No, I wasn't at all. So Duchess is, she's the star of the show. She's 13 years old and, and you know, a 13 year old will make the wrong moves like we all do you know we still make bad decisions now I do it all the time um but no it's the last thing I kind of think about if readers are going to really like this character as long as she's authentic and feels authentic when I'm writing her then you know it's kind of up to you to make up your mind whether you're for or against her obviously I want everyone to like her because I like her but um I don't know. No one is. We're all more than the worst things we do, aren't we? And she does some bad things, but we've all got other sides to us, and and that's what makes us interesting, I think, as people. And I want to read, you know, characters like that that are flawed in some way, because it's kind of all the sweeter when they succeed. So no, I didn't really worry about it. Although I've had some messages from people saying they really like, a lot of them love her, but some of them really dislike her, which um, I take personally because <laughs> I created her.
0: Um, our final question then from the Reading and Feeding Book Club in Drogheda, Kentilowth, is from Fiona.
4: This book is very beautifully written, with each word seeming well chosen. I'm intrigued by the title, which I'm sure was a very deliberate choice. I know a couple of characters use the phrase in the novel, but can you tell me what we begin at the end means for you?
5: OK, so thank you, Fiona. That's very kind. Um, the, the title, the um, the story begins with the town of um, Cape Haven, this small Californian town, searching for a missing girl. And um, then they find a body. Um, that's the very opening of the book. Now, it's this kind of perfect cookie cutter small town on the California coast where nothing bad has happened before. So it kind of stuns them and the the locals, they aren't used to it. And um, then the story moves on, so we pick up 30 years later and we catch up with some of the characters involved and um, it kind of becomes apparent that they haven't moved on. They're kind of living in the shadow of this horrible thing that happened. Um, Even Duchess, who was born a long time after the event. So um, the title, we're kind of beginning the story and what turns out to have been the end of their lives, all these people, and they're just kind of stuck. And um, then kind of later in the book, the phrase is used by um, Duchess's grandfather, who is the, the dead girl's father. And um, he tries to draw hope from the fact that, you know, if you believe in a heaven, then um, maybe the eternal life begins at the end of this one. Um, Duchess questions this and finds it hard to accept that her life is kind of a dry run for the next life. Um, It was just a perfect fit, really. And I I didn't actually name the book. So I named the the prologue, We Begin at the End, and then my editor, because I've I've given up naming books because they always get changed. And then my editor kind of pulled it out. And and I'm really glad that she did because it is the perfect fit.
0: Do you remember what was your original preferred title?
5: I called it book three. <laughs> <laughs> and I will call the next one book four. Because I spent ages on titles before. And, um, and then the sales department get involved and, and they kind of um, override everything else and work out what's, what will work.
0: And the right decision uh, in, in, in the long run. Chris Whittaker, it's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks a million.
5: Thank you very much. We
0: Begin at the End by Chris Whitaker, is published by Bonnier Books. Thanks to Chris and to the Reading and Feeding Book Club for the questions. If you'd like to volunteer your book group to take part in a future episode, you can drop us a line at any time to bookshow at rte.ie. And that's it for this week's Book Show on RTE Radio 1. The podcast is available wherever you find yours and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BookShowRTE. I'll talk to you again next week. As ever, don't forget to check with your local bookshop for any of the books featured on the programme.